Virtually all of us face limitations in our daily work and lives when it comes to resources, budget, availability of time, and yet those limitations don't need to stop us. On today's show, how to transform your limitations into advantages. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 207. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. We believe leaders are made, not born. And this weekly show will give you access to the best thinkers, resources, and actions to enhance your leadership skills. I'm so glad that you have joined me again for today's show, or maybe you're joining for the very first time. In that case, welcome. And today, a message that I know you're going to want to hear, and I hope you're going to walk away with really thinking differently on how you approach your influence in organizations, in your industry, and maybe even in your own family. And I'm really glad to be having a conversation today with Mark Barden, who is the co-author of the book, A Beautiful Constraint, How to Transform Your Limitations into Advantages and Why It's Everyone's Business. Mark runs the West Coast business for Eat Fish in the U.S. Uh, over his career, he's won the Platinum Award for Direct Response Marketing. He's taken a dot-com public. He's warmed up a crowd for Ellen DeGeneres, and he's even played a Buddhist monk in a Kleenex commercial. In addition to strategy consulting, Mark is a speaker and facilitator. Mark, I'm going to go out on not too big a limb, and I'm going to guess that you're the first Coaching for Leaders guest that has ever appeared as a Buddhist monk in a Kleenex commercial. Uh, <laughs> so you got you to gotta tell us a little bit about how that happened. Yeah. Uh, well, quick story. It was, um, I used to work in the ad business. I started an agency called Black Rocket uh, back in the mid nineties. And um, some years after I'd left that, one of my partners, who was a director, commercials director, uh, called me and he said, dude, because that's how commercial directors talk to each other. <laughs> dude, what are you doing next week? And I said, well, I'm actually on vacation. So uh, he said, you're not going out of town, are you? He said, no, no, I'm here. I'm just going to have a little staycation. He said, I want you to uh, be cast to be play a monk in a commercial. You're up for it. And I thought that sounds like a lot of fun and, you know, I'm up for a little adventure. So I show up, I got uh, enrobed, I was cast, they selected me and it was all kind of last minute panic stations because they hadn't been able to find anybody that fit the bill. And I show up on set and I'm thinking I'm going to be one of a bunch of monks, you know, in the background. And it was... Right a Kleenex commercial in which I was the star. Nice. And, uh, <laughs> having never acted before, uh, looking, I suppose, like a Buddhist monk, I've got a shaved head and, and so on. Anyway, cast me in, in it. And it was uh, a great experience. Really enjoyed it. And uh, I enjoyed seeing the look of surprise on the face of my parents as they sat there and watched it and said, he looks a bit like you. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. You know, it's so funny, like where life leads us sometimes and where our careers lead us. And and somehow like the most random thing can sometimes turn into something either really fun or really adventurous. And I, I kind of had a little bit of that feeling when I heard about this book. And I heard about it on another podcast, actually. Someone had mentioned it. Mm. And uh, when I heard the title, A Beautiful Constraint, How to Transform Your Limitations into Advantages, I was I thought about that and I was like, oh, that's good. Because that is 
the story and I would say the excuse so many of us use in organizations and in leadership about why we cannot make things happen is I don't have the resources. I don't have the budget. um, I don't have this. My organization doesn't support me in this way. I know I've done it. Um, I'm guessing you have, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners have too. Before we get into the the how, why the concept for the book? Where did this come from of, of thinking this way, of looking at constraints as an advantage? Yeah. So the name of our business is Eat Big Fish, and we're a consultancy firm that helps uh, little fish eat big fish. And we call this challenger brands. My partner, Adam Morgan, coined the phrase challenger brand uh, 15 years ago. And so our business is built on working with people whose ambitions exceed their resources, and they are prepared to accept the implications of the gap between the two by thinking differently, by taking a few calculated risks, by trying to find the opportunity that they have in those constraints. So, you know, over the course of working with them, with them for the last 15 years, we've developed a few tools, techniques, insights about how to get people over what what we describe as the victim mindset, you know, that characterization of they just give up before they've started almost. And, and how do we get them to see that the opportunities that they have in some of those constraints? And then, you know, this just started to feel like more and more the reality for just about everybody, not just challenges who have ambition, but um, the way the state of the modern world is, is, and whether it's, you know, a constraint of, no, who has time? Who has time anymore? We're being asked to do so many new things. And you think about the explosion, for example, of social media channels, which I'm sure a lot of your audience are excited about that prospect because it allows them to reach customers and, uh, and find insight and knowledge that they couldn't possibly have gained even 10 years ago before this, all these channels opened up. They are at once a source of abundance, they are at the same time a source of constraint limitation because who has the time to track all those things now? So it just felt that this notion of how do we do more with less is right for the times. And we can talk more about the larger societal context in which this book sits. But we felt like we had an opportunity here to help move people from that victim mindset, that sense of, well, I just don't have enough, to what we call the transformer mindset which is a complete readjustment of your head towards when you see, when you're confronted with a constraint or a limitation, uh, that your first instinct might be, I'm hosed. But your second instinct very quickly, because of the methodology we've put in this book, is to say, what's the opportunity here? Where is the silver lining in this cloud? And can I have a different kind of relationship with constraints that is more productive and is going to lead us to find opportunities into the very real things that today we feel are holding us back? And that seemed like a sort of magical place to be. If you can find the opportunity constraints, how transformative that can be for people, whether in big businesses or small businesses, in their own personal lives too. Well, speaking of magic and constraint, maybe it's because my son started preschool today on the day we're recording this, but but it's also because you mentioned it in your book, Dr. Seuss is actually mm. a really interesting example of this. Tell us the Dr. Seuss story. Yeah, so this is the uh, early 50s. And at the time, uh, a, a big um, op-ed came out, one of the major newspapers, decrying what they called the pallid primers that we put in front of America's school children, these kind of dull, boring Dick and Jane uh, books. And so the publisher approached uh, Theodore Geisel, who at the time was already a, a you know, well-known uh, illustrator, and said, 
we would like you to write a book that a first grader cannot put down. So they're laying out this big ambition, which he really responded well to. He said, great, I love that, love that challenge. And then they said, because this is the era of phonics. Phonics is starting to become a big deal in the, in the States. And this is, um, you know, about learning through the sound of words. And they said, we want you to write this book using only the words on this list. And they gave him a list of about 234 words, I think it was, all of which were CVC words, consonant, vowel, consonant. Mm. So suddenly this beautiful ambition, I'm going to make a best-selling book that first grades can't put down, but I've got to do it with this ludicrous set of handcuffs on. And he said, it just can't be done. And he almost gave up on the job. And right at the last minute, he said, I'm just going to take the top two words on that list and I'm going to make them the title of the book. And they were cat and they were hat. And the constraint of just being able to use that limited set of words forced him to invent this style that we now know and love as the style of Dr. Seuss, which propelled that book to the top of the bestseller list. And then subsequently, some years later, his, public, his next publisher challenged him to do something similar with just a short, much shorter list of words. I think it was 50 and there were a couple of, it was allowed a couple of extra words and he wrote green eggs and ham. So it's a really good example of the constraint in this case of resources, I suppose, the, the resources of a writer are the words that they use to make a book, uh, actually being the thing that created something better than it would have been if they'd said to him, write a book for us. He knew where to start. It made the outcome quite unique in terms of style and the rest is history. Well, it's interesting. And you mentioned earlier on a moment ago that kind of the first thought a lot of times we have when we have a constraint is, oh my gosh, I'm hosed. Mm. And uh, I, I think it shouldn't be missed that that was Seuss's first, yeah. first response too. Absolutely. And what? in fact, the, the vast majority of the people that we spoke to in researching the book. So in addition to, you know, all our work as practitioners, we identified 80 case studies that seemed to make sense with this uh, idea. And we went out and did 30 or so interviews with people. And uh, there's a very famous designer called Michael Beirut, uh, who works at a design company in New York called Pentagram, who said to us, you know, even me, with my years of experience and my fantastic track record and all the craft skills I have and all the great people I surround myself with, when I get one of these quote-unquote impossible briefs, I always go to the victim mindset. Mm. And it gave us this kind of um, great insight, I think, to be able to say to the world, including all the people that are listening uh, here on, the, on, on this show, allow yourself to be in that spot. You know, if you are tempted to go to the victim mentality. No, that, that's human nature. We, there's almost like a fight or flight response that kicks in when somebody put, imposes this impossible brief on us. Go there, indulge yourself in it, get all the stuff out, use it as a cathartic experience, and then say, right, now that we've done that piece, let's move into a more productive phase and let's use some of the methodology. So the book basically is just enough process. It breaks down uh, what has been happening in all of these situations from Seuss to Audi, Ikea, BrewDog, small businesses have been able to, to take limitations and transform them. What is it that's happening? Can we break it down into a repeatable process so that people know how to get started? Because oftentimes that's the hardest piece, isn't it? You, yeah. You're sitting there down in the dumps, you don't know where to start. Here's a methodology that allows you to do that. Uh, that's fabulous because uh, I, I was really interested to find out that even, like you said, the people who have been the real transformers in this way and have really worked through this challenge of using constraints to their advantage. 
it's not it's not the first reaction that's different. <laughs> and in no, fact, you encourage people to stay there. So I, I, I really like that. It's the, okay, what do they do differently after that that really makes the difference? And so I think that there's a lot of hope there for all of us. Um, and I know one of the things you, you've really, uh, you know, part of the book is built around how do... Uh, how do leaders utilize mm. constraints in order to affect change? And um, and one of the 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 things you articulate is that uh, they believe transformers are made and not born. And so I'm curious, what is it that the people? What's the difference maker of the leaders who are able to then come out of that and say, okay, we can do something with this, versus the people that just say, ah, you know, no no chance we're ever going to make this happen. Yeah, I think it's, it starts with this, you know, one of the things we're trying to blow up here is this myth that there are just individual geniuses who can figure out this stuff much better than the rest of us. And so we should just kind of put our feet up and wait for them to fix it. Um, this book is full of stories from people from all kinds of backgrounds, from the world of education, healthcare, brewing, entrepreneurship who've been able to do this. And, you know, there are no unifying characteristics of these people other than they've convinced themselves that they have no choice but to figure out the opportunity here. And so to lean into that. So one of the, one of the kind of prescriptions here for leaders is to, before you begin, if you can't get your group or your, even, even yourself to have that positive mindset that you genuinely believe it is possible to use this limitation, this constraint, to open up your thinking, to create new ideas. You have to believe that that is possible before you even begin. And that becomes from, there's an insight in the book, um, psychologist Timothy Wilson talks about, we are the stories we tell ourselves. Mm -hmm. So the place to start is by telling stories to each other of situations from either our own personal biography of, hey, you know what, this reminds me of a time when I dot, 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 Everybody's got one of those stories, Dave. We, I address audiences all over the world on this subject. And typically I'll get people coming up at the end saying, got a story for you, Mark. And it's about their grandfather who did something. It's about them that did, they did something. It's about something in the very early days of when they started their business. And, you know, if you're, if you've now working at a medium-sized corporation with 200 people, there was a time when that was a small business and you had to invent and you had to create and you had to be ingenious in how you dealt with these things. And let's, tell each other those kinds of stories. Let's surface them, let's celebrate them, let's write about them, let's stick them on the walls of the office so that every day we're surrounding ourselves with this sense that, you know, we've done this. People like us have done this. Let's not leave it to Elon Musk and Steve Jobs. Let's do it ourselves. Mm. So I think, you know, the, the key tool in convincing your people that transformers, as we call them in the book, are made and not born is to prove to people they've already done this. And then that gives them the sort of, oh, yeah, you're right. That gives them a little bit of confidence to lean into going through the, you know, the five or six steps of this method. Well, speaking of storytelling, one of the things you and I were talking about before we got on the recording is that I know you guys care and are very much concerned with some of the larger implications of constraints that we're all dealing with on the planet right now, which is mm. climate change and mm. like how the book in a lot of ways is um, is looking at that larger, larger challenge that's in front of all of us, and it's a huge, huge constraint. And you pointed out that it's interesting because, after all, you guys are doing marketing. So in some ways, you guys are trying to get people to consume more, and yet you know you also have this strong passion for 
helping the world to think through how do we work through this huge constraint that we're all dealing with right now. Mm. Um, what's the story you guys are telling yourselves? <laughs> what a great challenge. Yeah, I mean, so I think lots of people in the business world, if you're, if you're paying attention to, uh, and climate change is just one aspect of it. There are, you know, many sort of uh, ways in which the, um, frankly, the growing affluence of the planet, you know, there are more and more people raising themselves up. If you go to the developing world, you know, India, China, apart from what's happening in China at the moment with this little moment that we're in with them, the general picture is lots of people raising themselves up out of poverty, acquiring more, wanting to live the kind of lifestyles that we lead. The pressure on all the resources it's going to take us to, um, equip them in the same lifestyle to which we Americans and Brits have become uh, uh, used to is going to be very challenging. And our, so our business is about helping businesses grow, our, our consultants about helping people grow, recognizing that's going to lead to all these pinch points. And I think um, the constraints that uh, we're facing, the, the most progressive businesses and some of the big companies that we studied in this book are actually the ones that are trying to square that circle, that are trying to say, where are the growth opportunities in all these limitations and constraints that are being foisted upon us by uh, growing e economies all around the world and, and, uh, and the resource constraints? So Nike, for instance, to make, I'll land this for you, a story about, about Nike. So, you know, very um, accomplished company, very good at selling products to people, recognizing that water shortage is very, very real. And I'm sitting in California and I know what that looks and feels like. But on a, on a planetary scale, we're going to have water crisis. So they start to ask themselves an impossible question, which is how can we manufacture products that use not just a little bit less water than we currently use, but zero water? That kind of impossible question is what is forcing that organization to look for solutions that are step change different in terms of how they manufacture. And lo and behold, a Dutch company uh, has discovered a waterless dyeing process that Nike has, has, has created a strategic alliance with this company, along with IKEA, actually, one of the other companies we study, where they're able to dye uh, a lot of their apparel using this waterless dyeing technique. Now, it's literally water-free. They're, they're, they're struggling at this moment to, to scale that, but they've got, you know, production that is happening in that pro and it uses no water. Now, the average amount, you'd be shocked as how many gallons of water it takes to grow, to weave, to manufacture, to dye a piece of uh, a Nike apparel. So this particular waterless dyeing technology that they've uh, invested in with Daiku is allowing them to produce uh, garments that are waterless dyeing. And guess what? The solution, the outcome, is better, richer, more saturated colors than they've ever been able to create before. Mm. Um, and that's going to allow them to address cost of goods issues. It's going to allow them to uh, address where they put their factories, frankly, because they're not going to need to put the factories next to big water sources. And hopefully it's going to drive consumer demand for that product. So they're able to drive good demand present their brand to the world as progressive and innovative, which of course we all know it to be, better for the athlete, better for the planet, better for Nike, because their mindset, they're bringing this positive mindset now to, whenever we look really hard at a constraint, it actually turns out to deliver in the end, after a lot of struggle, a lot of process, a better solution 
that's better for us and helps us to compete. And so they, they've increasingly a lot of confidence that their ability to deal productively with constraints is a competitive advantage and it's going to allow them to win. It's going to allow them to win in a world where if we don't take care of uh, the water resource issue, we're going to run out of people to sell it to and we're going to create chaos. So there's self-interest as well as planetary interest in this ability to solve this problem. That's interesting. So it's it's almost changing our mindset of this doesn't have to be an either or. This doesn't have to be a business or environment. This doesn't have to be a marketing or um, or global warming. That this can be this can be positive in both areas. And mm-hmm. I, I think that leads right to one of the points you make in the leadership chapter in the book is um, the people who are able to do this. They got people around them to believe that it's possible. Yep. And, and I'm curious, when you think of the companies that you guys have, have worked with and studied that have done this well, what is it that the leaders, the key people did in those situations that got people to believe in the possibility of this? Yeah, so it's, this is, it's a very nuanced and, and, and difficult question to, to answer because some of it comes down to how do you, an understanding of how do you motivate your people? So, you know, there are some people at, 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 at an Ikea, an Ikea or Unilever, whose primary goal is, is this going to get me promoted? Right. So you have to be able to frame the impossible briefs in such a way to those people that what they hearing is, this is going to be good for me. Some people are going to be motivated by the fact that, um, oh, so I can actually go home and tell my kids that we are working on solutions that are going to make sure that there is a planet for them to grow up in. That personally turns me on. Other people are going to say, am I going to get bonus for this? If that's the case, then we need to design these programs, these innovation programs, to meet the needs of the personal narratives that each of these people hold about themselves. So that a leader's role is to connect with people. Look, this is going to be difficult, right? These impossible briefs, these propelling questions, as we call them in the book, can be very tough to solve. What is it that we're going to need to do for you to make sure that you remain involved and invested in this process when the going gets tough. And being able to sort of bend and flex and, and around the different narratives, larger purpose, saving the planet, personal progress, you will get promoted, you will get bonused, we will continue to survive as an entity. A good leader is able to understand what turns on the individual members of this team and craft the narrative around these projects to fit, to suit. That's, that's a really evolved uh, form of leadership, I think. You know, and, and involved in that, what comes along with that is great storytelling capability. You know, I, I've heard, um, so Ikea, let me tell you a story about Ikea because I think they're fascinating. You know, that I'd love to hear it. Let, let me, let me yeah. just point out something before you tell that story. Though. Mm. I, I'm, I'm, I'm really, I, I almost expect it now. So many times on the show market comes up that good leadership is meeting people where they are first. And I think sometimes we miss that as leaders. I know I do of like stopping and not necessarily making judgment judgments about where people are and what motivates them, but really taking the time to understand that. And I, it's it's so interesting, and I, and I also love that that comes into play here too. Of let's start by meeting people where they are, the individual people of the team, what motivates them, what connects with them, and finding ways for that to be part of the narrative. And I just I just think that's really cool. So sorry to interrupt you, but I just want no, to point that fine. out. Uh, and I think you know one of that's a reflection to some degree of our bias as marketers, right? So we're marketers now. We're we're certainly think much much bigger than just the marketing side of it, as is reflected in this book. But as a marketer 
you, you go nowhere very fast if you don't understand the needs of your audience. And so a lot of marketing messages are crafted to, you know, scratch itches, tick boxes, amplify stories that people already hold about themselves. And, you know, internal marketing, therefore, of a difficult project has to start with who are the needs of the people that I'm going to engage with here and how do I get them to commit to me in the way that people commit to brands and products. I so, love it. I love yeah. it. I love it. That, but it's such a lesson we can all learn from marketers who do this really well. It's understanding your audience first. And I'm, I'm relearning that lesson every single day. And I know when, when our organization and when we really take the time to do that, what a difference it makes. My goodness, mm. it's so powerful. So powerful. Yeah, and I think the other side of it, and this this leads into this um, IKEA story, the other side of this is, you know, it's not just a collection of individuals that work in an organization. You work at a specific organization that has a specific identity. And that is important. You know, if I go to work at Charles Schwab, it is partly because I know that Schwab puts the needs of its clients first. And he's very disciplined about that. And that gives me a certain kind of, uh, mojo. So the identity of the firm and being a really good storyteller around purpose, which has become such a buzzword these days. And, you know, Ikea has a purpose, but the, the mom and pop dry cleaner down the street from me has a sense of what its purpose is. Connecting it to that story. So in Ikea, in every Ikea around the world, probably unbeknownst to everybody on this, on this show and anybody who's even been into an Ikea, somewhere in that store is a picture of an old stone wall from the fields of Smarland, which is an area of Sweden where Ingvar Kamprad, the founder of IKEA, was born and raised. And it's in there to remind the staff who work there of the identity of that business. Now, Smarland is a, it's a rural part of uh, Sweden. It's known for its agricultural, its farming, but the land is quite poor. And those stone walls are a manifestation of how the farmers have to make the land better. They dig up all those big stones out of their ground to make it suitable for planting and they build stone walls to create the edge of the field. Hmm. And it's such an emblematic story about IKEA's ability to make more out of less. So the whole founding story of IKEA is, you know, Ingvar spotted all these offcuts just going to waste at the lumberyard and figured out that he could make furniture out of them. And that spirit of what do we take that nobody else wants and turn it into something great that people do want is at the heart of, of um, IKEA culture. And so they're constantly telling these stories and reminding each other. So there's you know a tiny little story that appeared in um, IKEA's in-house magazine. And this is you know going back to this notion of storytelling and making sure we're celebrating the right things um, that, that celebrated the, uh, the creation of one of these uh, metal teaspoons at IKEA that has... Um, it has a loop for a handle instead of solid handle. And the question is, why would you do that? And the answer is, well, there is a number of constraints that if you're an IKEA designer, you're constantly trying to hit. How do we get the price point down? Can we save any material here? We can if we take the middle of that spoon handle out, we've saved some raw material cost. We've now also saved weight, so it's cheaper to ship to uh, the IKEA stores around the world. And it turns out that it's a better teaspoon because a, a hollow handle conducts less heat from the tea. So that hot spoon that you get when you're stirring your coffee in the morning, you don't get that with these new spoons. Oh, and those people are lauded, rewarded, celebrated through the in-house magazine. People at IKEA know that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to say all these, use all these little constraints uh, 
as sources of inspiration to create better product. A great example of that and, and using constraints in a positive way that matches an organization's culture. And, uh, and, and that also brings up my next question too, which is the, you know, being a student of organizational behavior, I know how hard it is to change assumptions and routines and how we mm. do things in, in organizations. And I know you, you mentioned in the book that one of the things that the transformers are able to do is really enable their teams to challenge the organization's routines and assumptions. Yep. What's an example of, a, of someone or an organization who's done that and how do they do that well? Yeah. So the principle again is that, you know, what, what we found is that when you set these impossible briefs, um, you cannot solve them using the methodologies and the processes and procedures that have got you to where you are today. Because by definition, they're really difficult. And, and, and oftentimes we'll find that the leaders in, the, in these kind of situations will do something quite counterintuitive, which is in the face of a constraint, actually increase the ambition further still. And what they're doing is they're trying to force the organization to abandon the tried and true. Now, this is very challenging because the modern corporation is designed to be really efficient, right? We want replicable practices that allow us to move through our day efficiently, productively, and therefore, you know, create, create margin at the end. But oftentimes, in the face of a constraint, we have to break something. We have to say, what worked for us in the past is not going to work to solve this problem. So one of the things to create that positive mindset towards the constraint in the very early part of this process is to say, let's have an honest appraisal of some of these procedures and practices and ask ourselves, which of these are still serving us and which aren't? So a very, very small tactical example of, of how this works. So Unilever, and I know this is a big corporate story, um, but trust me, the same thing would work at a mom and pop store down the street. So Paul Polman uh, came in CEO of Unilever about five or six years ago now. And in collaboration with this executive team, they set a great big, what we call a propelling question. It's the combination of ambition and constraint put together into one question that the organization is trying to solve. And he said, we are going to double the growth of our business, double the size of our business, classic CEO statement, but here's the constraint bit. We are going to do that whilst halving our footprint, whilst halving our impact on the planet in the communities that we serve. Those two things don't sit together. And therefore, what that propelling question did was it forced Unilever in all their supply chains and the marketing departments to question all the assumptions about how they've been doing business up to that point because they know that they can't double the size and half their footprint. And so everybody's given this responsibility of questioning all the assumptions, going back to, well, why do we do it that way? giving each other permission to question some of the assumptions. And someone says, hey, I've noticed that in the uh, tomato products business, so um, Unilever makes a lot of ragu pasta sauce, for example. In the tomato side of the business, there's this, there's this protocol here that says um, we're only allowed to accept, I think it was 5%, I may get my number wrong, 5% green tomatoes in the sauce. Um, and somebody said, why is that? Why is it 5%? Why is it not 10%? And someone said, I, I don't know. Uh, let's see if we reformulate using 10% what it tastes like. No impact on taste whatsoever. No one could tell the difference. So, well, let's move to 10%. The massive impact of that in their system was, was profound because a lot of 
green tomatoes are thrown away as waste. So they're now allowed to put those into the tomato sauce. That makes a massive impact to the farmers from whom they are sourcing. They get to reprogram all the optical pickers that they use in the developed world, at least, to pick 10% instead of 5%. So they're creating margin and profit throughout the system for themselves and their brand, for the farmers that they're picking, all by somebody saying, well, why 5%, why not 10%? Mm. And it was all prompted by the um, willingness to embrace the opportunity and constraint by the CEO at that, at that, at that high level. He created this cascade through, throughout the organization. So periodically, it's really worthwhile any organization saying, okay, well, look, rather than keep our ambitions over here and we talk loftily and glowingly to our employees about how we're going to grow and what we eat, and then all the stuff that the constraints and limitations we sweep under the rug and pretend they don't exist, and we talk about them on Friday nights when we have a beer, let's bring those things out, put them on the table, and look at those first and foremost and say, if we can figure out how to use those constraints productively to help us meet these ambitions, that's a win-win, not just for us, but that's a win-win in this case for the planet. And that's been profound in terms of um, creating employee engagement at Unilever around these questions and the willingness to go in and do the hard work of challenging all the assumptions that have been built over time. Well, I got to ask you about the last four words in the title of the book, because uh, while well, the first part of the title captured my attention, uh, the last part of the title, you know, the, the title is a beautiful constraint, how to transform your limitations into advantages, and then, and why it's everyone's business. Mm. So why is it everyone's business? What do you guys mean by that? Well, it's everyone's business because we don't feel we're going to be able to squeak through this narrowing window here of what the future looks like in a massively resource-constrained world, unless everybody figures out solutions to the problem. And I feel like in our culture, there's, you know, there's, and it's written about by many other people, there's this great man theory of history, right? When you pick up a business magazine, there are pictures of individuals, and we all know who they are on the front covers. The reality of all of those situations is there are really creative, intelligent, productive teams of people collaborating to make that stuff happen. And yet the great man theory of history leads us all to conclude that there are just single individual geniuses, men or, or women. It's not called the great woman, woman theory of history yet, but it should be. Um, and that leads us to think that, well, we just have to wait for the geniuses to figure it out. And I just think that's unacceptable. Um, and that what this book proves by looking at the breadth of cases that it does and the breadth of people in different backgrounds is that Anybody with the right mindset, the right method, and the right motivation can be better at solving some of these problems. And if we all get good at it, and we develop this capability much more broadly than it is currently held, that we will be able to make progress far faster as, as a culture than we are doing today. And that's going to give us the best chance at survival. So <laughs> we're all for it. Yeah. Amen <laughs> to that, brother. And, you know, it really is, uh, it, it's... I mean, today in particular, with the internet and how connected we all are, years ago, if you had a great idea or you were willing to challenge the system in some way and your organization or your boss wasn't up for it, um, you know, you were done. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and now, not that it's easy today, but now the voice, the opportunity, the connectability we all have to create something new and actually go out in the world and distribute it and to influence people 
is profound. I know both my wife and I have been stunned at like the impact we've been able to have just by getting out on the internet and being able to bring a message. And so many people are doing so much more than that who have way fewer resources than we do. And so I, I'm just I'm just really struck by like what opportunity there is here, Mark, at a time when we see a lot of constraints. And I'm I'm just thrilled that you guys have put together this 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 challenge to all of us who lead on how we can really look at these constraints as an opportunity. I think it's a fabulous way to look at leadership. Mm, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. And, you know, I'm happy to say that a lot of people are responding in the way you are. So, you know, I, I, what we need is more and more proof. So if anybody out there is thinking, yeah, that sounds like it's a good fit for me and for my business, my situation, grab a copy of the book, work your way through some of these tools with your people. And with, when, when and if you are successful with it, Share it. Because again, the more people are telling these stories about themselves, the more we all come to believe that it is possible and I can be part of it too. Absolutely. And for those who do want to get in more, obviously, uh, grabbing the books of Great First Step, what's the great, uh, best way for folks to connect with you guys online and maybe find out more about your work and uh, what you're up to? So uh, if you go to eatbigfish.com, um, on that site, it tells you a little bit about us. And there's a specific section of the site about a beautiful constraint and uh, you can get a free uh, introductory chapter there. So the introduction is free. So if you want to kick the tires, um, give us your email address. We'll send you that. You can read it. And if you like the sound of it, obviously you can go and, and buy it at any good bookseller. And equally, they will provide links to um, to YouTube. So we've, there's a lot of video of us speaking about this to various audiences. And uh, if you want to sort of, you know, start a meeting at the office with, let's listen to this guy talk about constraints as, as, as stimulus, as inspiration. Uh, there's a ton of stuff up there, including other people who've told us some of these stories. We've, we film as we go around the country and there's a lot of inspiration there. So uh, find it on YouTube. Mark Barden is the co-author of A Beautiful Constraint, How to Transform Your Limitations into Advantages and Why It's Everyone's Business. Hey, Mark, thanks a ton for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Dave. It's a great pleasure. A big thanks to Mark for his perspective. I hope you'll check out the information on his website if you'd like to learn more about the book. And even though Mark and I didn't hit on this in the conversation, I, I hope it's apparent that this certainly shouldn't be used as a framework or an excuse not to provide the resources and funding and uh, support that people in your organization need in order to be successful. That is one sure way to kill engagement, as many, many studies have shown. That said, uh, with that, that overarching thought in mind, we all work within constraints. We all work within budgets. And many of us utilize those for the reasons we are not going to do something or something isn't possible in our organization or in our lives. And to the extent that we can utilize that and see it as an advantage through this framework, I think it's really, really helpful to us. I'm actually going through this right now uh, in my work at Dale Carnegie. We're in the process of restructuring some of our roles internally, and we're having discussions about what will work, what won't. And I have a new constraint that I didn't have uh, the last time we did this, which is now having two young children and not being able to uh, be on the road as much as I used to. And so we're in the process right now of figuring out how does the how does my role continue to evolve being more virtually based than I was road-based years ago. And that's both a challenge and also a great opportunity. And we're really looking at it as an opportunity of how do we leverage 
uh, more virtual work and virtual support of our clients. And so it's a, it, it, is, it is daunting, no doubt about it. And there's some things we're trying to figure out that we haven't done before. Uh, at the same time, it's also uh, very much an opportunity. And those constraints are really forcing me to think a lot more creatively than I normally would. And that's been actually a really fun exercise. And I anticipate it's going to be really exciting for for us and for the organization. And so I hope that you will think that same way too when you're thinking about constraints. And speaking about constraint, I am recording this just before the episode airs here on a Sunday evening. And uh, I was uh, uh, trying to get a few things done after our kids had gone to sleep. And Bonnie had mentioned to me, uh, she said, did you see the news today? And it turned out that Dr. Wayne W. Dyer had passed away over the weekend. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Wayne Dyer, he, uh, boy, he, he started a movement of folks who really wanted to, I, I gosh, I, I can't capture it in a few sentences. Uh, he really helped people to, he inspired and empowered people to, to be who their best selves could be and to not be held back by constraints. And uh, which is why I was thinking of him in the context of the news and in the context of this conversation today, uh, he start he started in life as an orphan and went on to create this amazing community of millions of people worldwide, had many, many, many best-selling books. So some of the, in fact, at least one of them was one of the best-selling books of all time. And influenced so many people in so many positive ways, me included. I, I didn't know him, never met him, and yet so was so grateful for his message that he put out there in the world. And I, I think of the resources he had to work with, especially early in his career and early in his life of, of not having a family, and at least not in the traditional sense that many of us have had. And yet, in spite of those incredible constraints, how much good he brought into the world and how much love he brought into the world. And so I wonder how you may do the same today and how all of us may go forth and continue to challenge ourselves within our organizations, within the constraints that we all work within in our organizations and the funding we have in our families and the relationships and the health challenges that many of us have, not only ourselves, but with the close family members and friends, Uh, whatever your constraint is or constraints are, as the case may be, I hope that you'll take today's episode and utilize it to move forward. As always, comments and questions are welcome, and your questions welcome for next week's Q&A show. Bonnie will be back for episode number 208. Uh, Every first Monday of the month, we tackle questions and answers from the Coaching for Leaders community. So if you haven't been listening for a while, you can always submit questions at coachingforleaders.com slash feedback, and we'll consider those for next week's episode and beyond. And if you are listening for the first time and not yet subscribed to the show, please do so. The show airs every Monday, and you can Find it on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. And finally, just a reminder that I publish my weekly leadership guide every Wednesday. It is delivered to your email inbox on Wednesdays, and it always includes my thoughts and recommendations on articles, podcasts, videos, books, things that I have found online that I think will be helpful to you 
between the shows, and it also includes an overview of the weekly show notes, as well as some of the quotes that I pull out every week from the episodes. So some of the quotes from Mark are on that as well, or at least a link for it. And if you listen while you're on the go, like I do, I think it'll help you in tapping into the resources we mention in every episode. And as a bonus, when you join the Weekly Leadership Guide, you'll get instant access to my Reader's Guide that lists the 10 leadership books that will help you get better results from others and brief summaries from me on the value of each of those books. It's an 11-page reader's guide, and also you'll access my nine-minute video walking you through all those book recommendations. And I think you'll find that of value if you're looking to do what we've talked about today, which is moving beyond constraints and practical ways leaders can do that. You can access all of that at coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe. And I hope you have a fabulous week and I look forward to seeing you for the Q&A episode next Monday. Take care.